Hey, this is DeRay. I'm going to pass to the people. In this episode, it's me, Kaya, and Miles talking about the news that you don't know from the past week, the underreported news of the week. And then I sit down with activist and comedian Liz Winstead about her legacy on The Daily Show and her recent advocacy around the Mississippi abortion case. We chat about the history and future of reproductive health in this country, and I learn a ton as always. My advice for this week is to... Uh, check in on home, wherever you were born, grew up, the place that you consider home or the people that you consider home. Check in on those people. I always find home to be the most grounding part of the world. And, you know, my father raised us. I talk to my sister almost every day. And home is truly where the heart is. Here we go. Hey, Pod Save the People family. We're excited to be back with you this week. I'm Kaya Henderson at Henderson Kaya. I'm Miles E. Johnson at Feral Rapture. And it's Dre at DIY on Twitter. So, friends, a lot to talk about this week. And I guess we should start with the Kanye video, Easy, which we all just had the pleasure of watching together because I was a little behind the times and hadn't seen this video. Y'all, what in the world is going on? Okay, first of all, can we just have a moment for the fact that all of this is playing out like in public in this way when it is, I mean, we keep on talking about Kanye needs help Kanye needs help, Kanye needs help. But like, what Like, what are the consequences for a video where you literally decapitate your, I, I don't, uh, I guess, romantic rival and pour roses or, you know, make him a planter and a few other things. Like, what where, What do we do with this? What, uh, uh, can you tell how perplexed I am about <laughs> Oh my gosh, <laughs> what do we do with this? Yeah, I think Kanye is a really interesting figure. Probably not for the reasons why other people find him interesting. Well, to me, he's an interesting figure because he kind of pushes you to like pushes me to think in any way about like the kind of like two sides inside of me, which are like the critic, the person who wants some something to get better, and like the artist, somebody who thinks you should have all the rights to be able to express yourself. And and when it, specifically when it comes to that video, I think that we can say whatever we want to say about it, but it's deeply just representative of where Kanye, to me, is like headspace is. And Kanye, to me, has uh, watched the three-part documentary. I loved it. And I think Kanye is like deeply disturbed. And I think that Kanye is, is always wrestling to um, threaten the power back into his life and into bad boy or to rich or wealth or or cool his way back into feeling empowered in his life. And I think this was another example of that. And not to say, because, you know, if anybody else did this, it would definitely be seen as abusive and I don't want to give him any passes. But after watching that three-part documentary, it's hard for me to even take anything that he creates seriously in this way because because of the fact that like he's always trying to not seem like the the dweeb at the record label or seem like the broke kid who's not as rich as Jay-Z or the person who's not as talented as, you know, Common or Rhyme Fest. He's always kind of doing that struggle. And now he's, you know, lost, you know, to a lot of people, the most beautiful woman in the world, lost uh, his wife to this dweeby white dude. And now he's trying to like do that. It's just like, it's hard for me to take him like to take him seriously and I guess on the other end it makes me curious about Kim Kardashian and the fact that yet again a famous abusive man is kind of creating the narrative around her family and I wonder how that's even like how she that's seeking into her brain but I don't know the shock is a little bit the 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 documentary made the curb my shock because I was like oh this is what you do when you're still 13 in 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 your guts I mean, that boy ain't been right since his mama died, right? And he says in the in the song something about no more therapists. I, first of all, just on a plain old human level, like he's in deep pain and I want him to, I want him to be right. I want him to be okay. I like, I'm concerned about his personhood, right? And I think we have seen, you know, genius come from Kanye. Um, and there are a lot of artists who their genius comes from a place of pain, right? 
my girl Mary J. Blige then cornered the market on turning pain. Adele, right? These people have turned pain into, you know, profit. But I'm deeply, deeply concerned about him as a person, A number one. Um, I'm also concerned about his family. The children are seeing all of this or will see all of this at some point, you know, because it's all playing out publicly. And like, I, you know, when people are not their whole selves, like, should Pete Davidson be worried? Like, what, what, what? And like, what are, are there any criminal implications to this? You know, I watch it and I do, I agree with both of you. Um, Miles, I'm sensitive to the, how do you take it seriously? The thing about that though, is I think some of his fans take it seriously and they hate Pete. And they, you know, when Pete made his Instagram, they flooded the comments calling him skeet because that's what, that's what Kanye calls him now. And, you know, like that whole thing. And even Kim, when Kim texted him and she posted, and he posted the text messages being like, you're going to get somebody hurt. Like, stop it. And he's like, I'm sorry. The thing, the cycle of abuse to me that this is so, that makes it so clear to me is that he is at once saying, I want my family back. I want my family back. And then like threatening Kim and Pete in all these incredible ways. And it's like, even if Kim wanted to be with you, it's like, how do you, how, how do you go back to somebody who is like openly saying all the worst things about you? Like, do you remember the post where he said the best thing that ever happened to your life was having my first child? That's what he, that's what he said on Instagram. Like that is really, you know, that is gross and unkind and mean and spiteful and hurtful. And even in the song where he's like, I have these kids five hours a day. You're like, you're their parent. That's not like you don't get a bonus for having it. Five hours is not 24 hours, right? Like, and you have all the help or I don't negotiate with therapists. It's like those things make me, they scare me because I think that that, I think we've made so many strides around mental health. And then you hear Kanye being like, I don't negotiate with therapists, sort of normalizing this idea that getting help is actually a bad thing. And that's like, you're like, no. So I'm happy Instagram took it off. I am, um, I continue to be worried. And it's, you know, I think Kanye's, I think I like the way that you said it, Miles, like this, such a deep desire to not be seen as the insert here, right? Dweeb, poor guy, da 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 da. Uh, it's also this really interesting obsession with whiteness. Like, it just, so, even Pete, you know, it's like, come on, say it. It is like, it's like Kim, it's Pete, it's like what success looks like. And it's just like, but but while using black as the arbiter of authenticity, right? And, yes. and I'm interested, and like that, I think Kanye is truly the best spectacle of that in the public right now. Oh, absolutely. I've forever called um, Kanye West raps Pecola um, Brie Love. I've, I've always said that, like, as far as, like, just, like, the the the, um, the Toni Morrison character in The Blue Aside, just, like, being fascinated with, like, all of the, the, the things that whiteness has and just it kind of disturbing somebody. I remember when he had, like, the contacts and the blonde hair. I said, now, oh, yeah. this looks a little crazy. This not, like, you know, and I, <laughs> as somebody who's a provocateur, somebody who loves avant-garde fashion and how things look and loves aesthetic, like, that, I was like, oh, this looks like somebody who's literally looking like the disturbance that's happening inside of him and is, like, wearing it externally. And, that's, and chasing whiteness does drive you crazy because it doesn't exist and you can never be white enough and you can never be male enough or rich enough and it's it's built to drive you insane so and chasing your own tail i mean i also think that since you know his mother was a phenomenal you know integral figure in his life the next sort of woman of import was kim and so you know i understand or it, it seems obvious to me why he's holding on to you know this will be the second important woman that he's lost right and I like, I think we all have deep, deep attachment issues and mommy issues. Everybody has some connection, positive, negative, whatever. I just, I, I, I want, I don't know. I, I feel like, you know, whatever woman comes his way is, is, has the potential to run into this kind of a thing. And so oof, it just makes my heart sad and um, and I, I think you're right, Deray. Like, I'm worried that people are going to start getting hurt. And where's his people? Where are the people? Like, I hope that somebody grabs me when I fall off the deep end or when I am exhibiting behavior that might endanger other people. Um, yeah, y'all come get me. I will say the thing about his mother that I thought was so interesting in this latest round of episodes is he has started to 
say unkind things about her in a way that I'd never imagined. So he's been like, mm. you know, she kept me away from my father. She did this. Like she, she wouldn't let me, be, she wouldn't let my father be in my life because she was upset. Like as a sort of making the corollary to Kim, like Kim is keeping, keeping Kanye away. The kids. And the thing that is so interesting about that, but the corollary there is that Kim is making a decision because of Kanye's actions, right? Like he he totally is like absolving himself of any responsibility yeah. in the situation. And the second thing is that Julia Fox coming out afterwards being like she basically auditioned for the role. Like again, another white girl, the new girlfriend looks mm-hmm. just like Kim. She's 24, he's 40. And it's like, that is just such a, I do think it's like watching a car crash. Like people are enthralled with the spectacle, but but again, it just, it, it the obsession with whiteness is so front and center. My news this week is about the Russian invasion of the Ukraine, um, but with a slightly Black twist. And so um, I want to share with you a little bit about Maurice Creek, who is a former NCAA basketball player who played for Indiana, and he played for George Washington University. And he was a basketball star in college, um, and went on to play professionally in Europe. He's been playing in Europe since 2016, so um, about six years. And Maurice Creek um, got himself home after getting stuck in the Ukraine once Russia invaded. Uh, Five days after the invasion, he was able to get himself to the border of Moldova and get through um, after a harrowing experience. Um, He, in fact, was in the car for four hours traveling to the border with two Ukrainian women. Um, He got in line at the border, which was cold, less than 30 degrees, and he didn't have gloves or food. He waited in line for hours. um, And when he finally got to the front of the line, like you've heard about Um, many of the African refugees, he was sort of asked to move aside and they let other Ukrainians into Moldova before they let him in. Finally, they let him in. And his four American teammates had left um, days earlier, but he stayed. And the reason that he stayed is because the Ukrainian team that he played on hadn't paid him. And it's super strange to think about the fact that he'd been playing in the Ukraine for months. He hadn't been paid. And the Ukrainian team had been downplaying the possibility of invasion. Um, and he was like, look, I just need my money so I could get out of here. As the invasion neared, airline prices were spiking. And he was like, I got to get out of here. But I literally don't have money to um, take a plane. And because he had an assistant coach who was an American who had lived in the Ukraine for 20 years, um, that coach helped to orchestrate a series of things, um, a series of steps to get Maurice Creek out and get him back to the U.S. Um, We also learned this week about Brittany Griner, who's a WNBA player uh, with the Mercury, and Brittany, who was playing in Russia, um, was trying to get out of Russia and to come back to the United States when um, she was detained by customs officials in Russia who said she had vape cartridges with hashish oil in her luggage. Um, We don't know. She's been in a Russian jail, maybe. We don't know exactly where she is. Um, But it seems that um, this detention of Brittany Griner Um, is the Russian state, could be the Russian state acting against Americans. Um, And why was Brittany in Russia? Because she plays for a Russian league in the offseason. And she gets paid more in the Russian league than she does in the WNBA. Her WNBA salary is $228,000 with the Mercury. And she makes more in Russia than she does in the United States. And so I brought these two pieces of news to the pod because I think we, when we think athletes, when we think um, basketball stars, we think everybody is balling. Everybody's not balling. Not everybody makes it to the league. And even when you make it to the league, if you're a woman, 
um, the money is not commensurate. And so these folks were literally in harm's way. Um, Brittany is still in harm's way. As I said, we don't know. The Russian state is being quite ambiguous about where she is and how long she'll be there and what the, you know, what the next steps are going to be. But these are regular people, regular Black Americans who are, you know, using their talents to support their livelihoods, um, and they have to do it overseas. And literally, um, they are in harm's way because of this Russian invasion. And so when we think about the faces of the war, we see Ukrainians and we see other Eastern Europeans, we see Russians who disagree with the invasion, and we are, our hearts go out to all of them. But there are brothers and sisters who look just like us, who are out there trying to make a living, um, who are in harm's way because there's one to ball in Europe. And so I brought this to the pod because I thought this is a perspective that we don't usually see. Yeah, I thank you for bringing these stories in because I think sometimes, um, well, I think well, I think this particular po- like global political moment I think does feel close to home because I think everybody's like implicated and, and and we all kind of know that one move from any place can change where we're positioned in this invasion at all times. But I do think that you know often Black Americans and and just globally Black folks like feel like we're in our own world sometimes <laughs> like in in like they ain't really got nothing to do with us until this happens or whatever but this invasion is about us right now and um we are we are affected and then also I think and I don't this is just a, a thought it's not a, a necessarily a comment or an answer or whatever but I think about how um how much like our lives and how much of our um how much of our like livelihood when you when when you're a black person is is intertwined in these like oligarchs and 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 just like kind of demented places like like how like how much we we can't really remove ourselves um if we want economic freedom we and we also want to like do our passion that we're gonna like be in bed with these places that can do such horrendous things and also these deeply anti-black places because i'm willing to bet it now that a huge reason why she was detained wasn't just because she was American, but also because she was black American and because of those, uh, those other um, implications that holds, holds that. And, and, and we know that anti-blackness is global. And it's just scary to think that at any time that can turn violent and you can be, you know, essentially like, you know, tell me if I'm overstating it, but she could essentially be like a, essentially be like a criminal of war, right? Or like a, 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 a prisoner of war rather. Um, like that's horrifying. And just because you want to make a decent living for what you love to do. And I think that, you know, keeping that in mind is always, um, good, but yeah, I have, I have no answers, <laughs> but just like this running thoughts that came to my mind when I was, um, shared, when you shared that news. The thing that so Kai, I think your analysis of of the basketball players is 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 spot on. So I have nothing to add there. What Russia has made me think of is how the only way that Putin can can do this, or the way that he is able to continue, given you know the uproar around the world, is because he has blocked literally every form of communication. So it's like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, the internet is dead going near down, like. All of the TV stations are state-run. They've they've ended all independent uh, media. BBC's not there. All the major networks have pulled out. So it's like this place where, you know, you look online and you see these stories where people are like, the people in Russia don't even think a war's happening. They don't, they believe that it's, you know, because Putin's whole thing is that uh, the Nazis, they're Nazis in the Ukraine and he's going to go support the Nazis. But even the Russian people aren't even allowed to get access to just basic information. It has been interesting to see the world come together, like Visa and MasterCard, Apple, like Apple products somewhere, like creating this crisis. But I can only imagine what it's like to be in a country where they have the only message you hear is that like your leader is right and he's doing this righteous thing and the world just disagrees with it. But like, you know, just such a, it's, it's, I I think I'm, I'm surprised that in 2022, that's even possible that like, it's like we are all watching this country in a petri dish with no information and we all know we all know both sides and we see and da, 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 and they literally it's like there's just no news. The Navalny doc I saw it at Sundance 
And Navalny is one of the opposition leaders, probably the most famous opposition leader. He's currently in jail. He gets arrested at the end of the documentary. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens when this is over and to see how the the world either holds Putin accountable or doesn't or or does Navalny get out of jail, that whole thing. And somebody asked me the other day, how should they feel about it? You know, they were like, a black person was like, you know, it feels like we have so much privilege. And I was saying like, you know, yes, in America, there's definitely privilege for everybody relative to some other places in the world. But as black people, we are always, like no matter where we go, in the middle of an invasion, a pending war, like still, they not letting the black people get on the trains, not letting the black people on the planes, not paying the basketball play, like, you just when people have to choose between something, they do not choose black, and that yes. is like a, a, a tale as old as time. And I think this just plays again. So it's good that it's getting coverage. Oh, the last thing I'll say is, you know, people open their borders for the Ukrainians in two seconds. We're yeah. like asylum, asylum, asylum. All these black co- Haiti, mm-hmm. Haiti is still trying say to get it. people into places, and. And it's not happening. So again, it's a reminder that like we can do all the things we choose not to for black people. Don't go anywhere. More politics the people's coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. a lighter note but uh <laughs> gee whiz each time we, we we double back on this i'm like goodness gracious um but on um a lighter note my news is the saint haran library to know me is to know that most of my like heroes are dead <laughs> and those people who i really love in solange knows actually serves as, like, one of my, like, living heroes. I got to meet her at the Telfar show about two weeks ago. And um, that was amazing. And I looked cool, and she looks cool. And we just had, like, a cool moment. And um, when I was researching news that I tried to, if I can, for it to be um, positive and uplifting, I remembered um, the St. Haran um, Library, which is a library, um, a lot like No Names Library, but uh, specifically the St. Haran Library serves as um, an archive for um, content by Black folks um, that is not seen. So it has some great, great, great articles of like literature that you're like, wait, I didn't even know this existed. And if you're like a geek like me, I'm like, oh, yes, I want like Nikki Giovanni's like second book that only had like a run of 50 like so it's stuff like that um Salon said this is um a Vanity Fair um article Salon um said the St. Haran Library continues the work we have been building by preserving collections of creators with the urgency they deserve together we seek to create an archive of stories and works we deem valuable these works expand imaginations and it is vital to us to make them accessible to students and our communities for research and engagement so that the works are integrated into our collective story and belong and grow with us. I look forward to the St. Huron Library continuously growing and evolving and over the next decade becoming a sacred space for literature and expression for years to come. Um, speaking of, uh, one of the examples of the books that I really loved, I'll, um, uh, if you can, if you go on the, the um, St. Huron site, you'll be able to see this. But one of the books is um, No Matter Where You Travel, You Still, you still Be Black by Houston A. Baker Jr., which is like, like when I tell you like just, Afrocentric, like, geek nuggets. You're like, <laughs> like how, did, how did y'all get this? This is a really great resource. I think it's a beautiful thing. And again, um, we are in a very particular 
time when it comes to celebrity artists and Solange continues to be somebody who I think really makes really interesting decisions with what she decides to do with her platform and her vision and her voice. And um, I, I just love this and I was happy to bring this on as news. Um, yeah, that's my news for this week. It is a organizer mantra from forever ago, right? That we got to teach the people uh, so that they know what's true and what's not true. That we got to wake people up. People aren't born woke. And uh, there's there's no moment more apt for political education than this moment to help people see stories about blackness that are not only stories of slavery, but are also stories of a whole host of other things. I was actually thinking the other day about how, uh, you know, what we even know from the period of enslavement is the tip of the iceberg of evil that like, I'm sure the worst because the enslaved were not allowed to read and write. The worst things that people did, we just like, we don't, there's no written account. Uh, but these stories are a reminder of both uh, what has been and what's possible. And I'm excited that, you know, people, I even think about Twitter as like some people say some brilliant things that like don't travel far, but that was a word. You're like, that was brilliant. And thinking about a library of books that is essentially those things is, is really cool. I think about the analysis, you know, as an activist, when I'm looking for text to read to inform my work today, I'm almost never reading people who write today, partly because most of you writing today are theorists and not they haven't actually done a thing in the world. But also because there's a generation of like the 50s, 60s, 70s who wrote so much about the decisions they made, about the world they were in, about what power looked like, about how they should move. And those writings are still grounding writings for me today. I appreciate Solange. And as you said, Miles, the way she uses her platform, um, I think... You know, she has gone from being Beyonce's little sister to carving her own space as a cultural curator, as a an innovator. I mean, I was on the St. Heron website and she's got a ceramics residency where she is supporting artists in their ceramic work, right? Um, Black women practicing ceramic art. She is undefinable, honey, and I love it. She does what she wants to do and and this library piece is really really important um besides just giving people access you know a lot of this primary source material is how researchers and academics actually um what they do their dissertations on when they have access to this kind of thing and when people do their dissertations on black history black culture that stuff becomes part of the academy and in a very official way. And so she's making this material um, available, which will mean not only will more people read it, more people will analyze and write about it. And it becomes part of the respected and acceptable canon, which, you know, for some people that's important, but it's also part of us creating our own canon. What is what do we want all, you know, all black kids to read before they graduate from high school? That's the question that I've asked myself. And that's part of the reason why I founded Reconstruction, which is about black history, teaching our own history, our own culture, our own literature. And I think that Solange using her um, her celebrity to take on these really, really important preservations of 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 writers, of artisans, of musicians. Um, it just warms my heart and makes my heart smile. So shout out to Solange. Thank you, Miles, for bringing us to the pod. Of course. I try to sip it away. <laughs> Get out. Get out. <laughs> um. So mine is about Hertz because, you know, I had to you know, I got to weed the police in. And I saw this story was like, you know what? The world is just a crazier place than even I like, think sometimes. So uh, there are a couple stories. So there's one in USA Today. All of these are actually from the past week. So if you rented a car from Hertz, there could be a warrant out for your arrest. as one of the stories. And uh, who knew that Hertz has actually been filing police reports uh, reporting cars that were, were returned, uh, rental cars that were returned, reporting them as stolen. So one story I read talks about a woman named Paula Murray. She rented from Hertz in 2016. And then in 2021, she was actually going to be a dispatcher for the state police. She walks in to fill out some paperwork and gets arrested. 
she spends the next three months trying to get answers from Hertz, which is in uh, in Florida, before they finally dismiss our charges uh, three months later. So there are 230 plaintiffs who are suing Hertz for false arrest, and in some cases, prosecution. And the lawyers representing this cohort believe that this is just the tip of the iceberg. What Hertz admitted in the filing is that they file an average of 3,365 police reports about stolen vehicles in a given year. And that is just wild that they are record that their record keeping is so bad they don't really know who returned a car or who hasn't. And they're just reporting the cars as stolen. And I think about this, I returned a rental car once and they kept calling me like, where's the car? I'm like, I turned it in, took the gave you the keys, took a picture, da da da. They're like, we don't have the car. I'm like, I don't have the car either. I definitely like turned it. I got on a flight. And I just, I didn't, I thought I was like an aberration. I thought that was like a weird mess up at one station. I had no clue that they were weaponizing their shoddy system for record keeping and literally just filing police reports. And anybody who's had, a who's been arrested or been in the criminal justice system, you know that it's not as easy. Once a police arrest you, it's not as easy as Hertz calling and being like, oh, my bad. It's a whole process that people need a lawyer to go through and navigate the system. It's costly. This woman's out of a job. She had a job. She didn't do anything wrong. She returned the car and it's Hertz problem. And as you can imagine, Hertz isn't like helping her get a job back, which is why they're suing. And this is just a reminder of the collateral consequences of an arrest. Forget a conviction. People often talk about the collateral consequences or the long-term consequences of conviction. But for the majority of people in this country, an arrest itself has long-lasting consequences and hurts is a culprit. Y'all, this was mortifying to me. Um, You know, it, it said that some people were jailed for this alleged theft and at least one was allegedly held at gunpoint just hours after paying for a rental. Y'all know me. I'm afraid of jail. I try to stay on a straight and narrow because that's a place that I plan on not going. Could you imagine if my scaredy cat self had returned a car and the police pulled me over because they thought that hours later after I had returned the car because Hertz said that I stole it. Woo. Um, this is tragic. It is a tremendous example of corporate greed, overreach. Um, they talk about this being systemic. So the only way that it's systemic is if there are policies that instruct people in Hertz's all across the country how to do this, when to do this, why to do this. And, you know, a lot of these people are long-term renters whose car has been, you know, they're going, they're renting because, um, their insurance is paying for it, usually while, they, while their car is being fixed for something else. So you could imagine, you know, people who are living right on the edge of poverty, your main vehicle gets um, disabled and you are going through the insurance company doing all of the right things. And because Hertz is bugging out that you ultimately get arrested and potentially, this is, it's just horrible. And um, this is, an, I mean, I think you should be very careful about who you rent from. Yeah, it's it's damning. And also, I think, you know, on the more extreme side of things, but I think you can't overlook it, is anytime Black people have to interact with the police, it could become deadly. And I think that to have policies as something, whatever, I don't know anybody who has never had to Anybody over 25 who's never had to, like, in some way, in, in like, um, interface with a Hertz or a rental service. And when this is your policy, you might quite possibly be putting somebody in danger. God forbid something else was on their record or something like that. And then, you know, the police have the right to do whatever. And they might think that you're dangerous because of something else that's on your record or something else that might have been done. And then, and or even depending on what neighborhood you are, and they think that, you know, like Grand Theft Auto is a big deal, <laughs> and like, and if and if you go and they think you're dangerous or think that they have reason to, you know, use force or whatever, it can turn deadly. And I think that all companies, for whatever reason, that have in their policies that usually who um who make it part of their policies to interface with the police when things don't go right, need to reexamine that. And um, the Black community should reexamine our relationship with those places if they don't change those things, because that can turn deadly. Um, you know, like DeRay said, with the with the arrest and everything, of course, but, you know, our interactions with, with the police can often be fatal. So that's 
definitely something to take seriously. Thank you for bringing that um, that grounding, depressing news, Deray. Just gotta keep it, keep it grounded. One hundred. <laughs> This week, we have Liz Winstead back on the show to chat about federal and state laws targeting abortion access and overall reproductive health. We talk about Roe v. Wade and Supreme Court's intention to overturn the decision and what people can do. We talk about The Daily Show and her history on The Daily Show, which I didn't know about. And Liz argues that this is not just a woman's issue, and we need to all hands on deck fight to hold people accountable in the states to maintain reproductive autonomy for all citizens. How do we mobilize our local communities around reproductive justice? Where are the resources to assist us? Liz helps guide us through these times with regard to the issues around reproductive health and a lot more. Here we go. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People is coming. Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. Liz, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Always happy to be here. So a lot has changed. You were on the podcast a while ago. Um, Can you talk about, wait, let's just start with what's going on in your world today. What's going on in my world today is the truth is 47 years of our constitutional guaranteed right to abortion is about to be erased by the Supreme Court in June. So there's no anybody who says, well, if the court overturns Roe v. Wade, don't listen to those people. They're not serious people. The court is going to overturn Roe v. Wade. And so for activists on the ground working on reproductive health rights and justice issues, we're trying to figure out what uh, what the landscape for access to abortion looks like uh, starting in the summer. And it's it's pretty scary. And so that's what I am waking up every day thinking about. Got it. I have a lot of questions about that. And before we talk about that, though, I wanted to talk about the L.A. Times article that came out um, featuring you in July of 2021 about The Daily Show. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't know this, that The Daily Show was actually started by two women. Most people like in popular culture know it because of uh, Jon Stewart. And the article talks about how how you and your partner, Madeline, I think was her name, right? Madeline? Madeline. 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 Yep. Madeline. I done gave it a jazz. Madeline. Um, how how y'all were so instrumental to it. Can you talk about the where the story come from? Did it was somebody just asking about it or how did this come up last year? Um and then and then what is the true story of how it started? Yeah. So it came up because we it was the 25th anniversary of the Daily Show last summer and the Daily Show wasn't doing any anniversary around it. Nobody was like And I was like, that's super weird, y'all, that like 25th anniversaries are something everybody celebrates. So I don't understand. So we called up Comedy Central. We're like, are you doing anything? And they said no. And it was like, okay, well, then Madeline and I are going to get together all of the OG crew who launched the show and um, talk about what it was like, because here's the thing, DeRay, and this is really, I need some journalists to figure it out. There is no video from the first two years of The Daily Show. It was hosted by Craig Kilborn. There's, it doesn't exist. It's not on the website. Wait, what? Yes. What? It's gone. It's, I have VHS boxes. In fact, I just put up a thing on Twitter yesterday because I have VHS tapes that are direct from the masters 
But I think that I talked to Madeline and I was like, do you have any copies of the show? And she said, no, I don't know where they are. She said, I've heard they've been destroyed. I was like, destroyed? What? So I'm trying to get these boxes of VHS tapes I have to like the Paley Center or some organization so that they can be in the public record. They don't exist. They don't exist. Yeah. So that's Honestly, pretty. I didn't know that Craig Kilborn was the first host either, by the way. Until yeah. I no, I know. I mean, nobody knows it was two women. And, you know, I often when people say, oh, my God, I had no idea. And I said, it should give you more than just pause that you had no idea. You know, why is it that in the history of The Daily Show, the two people, I was also the head writer, created the show. Madeline and I, there wasn't a Daily Show. And then there was. And Madeline and I together created the concept. And, um, you know, why is it that the network and everyone involved never celebrated the two women that created it. I can't answer that for those that chose not to, but it's a question. It is a question. Now, what what made you, was it hard to pitch it to people? Like, were people like, this is silly, this is never going to work? Or like, how did you, how did you push through and make a format that hadn't been done before? So it is, a, it's a Cinderella showbiz story that when I tell folks, they're like, that's never happened in the history of showbiz. And uh, there's one other show that this happened to, and I'll tell our story and then I'll tell you who the other show was. So I myself started out in stand-up, did political stand-up for most of my career. I was working on, John Stewart had a talk show uh, that was a, on MTV before it was, before the Daily Show and everything. So I worked on that show. I was a segment producer, um, but I was always really political. And uh, when the show got canceled, our bosses at at the Jon Stewart show were tapped to run Comedy Central. And then Jon was tapped in a two-year development deal with David Letterman's company. I think, I, in my mind, Letterman was freaked out by how talented Jon Stewart was. And didn't want competition in late night. So he locked up John in one of those sweetheart deals they give people in show business where they'll pay you a bunch of money, but they actually don't let you make anything. It's really garbage, our industry, quite frankly. So our bosses at the John Stewart show called Madeline and I in and said, you know, one of the things that we want to do at Comedy Central is have an anchor show in the evenings that's kind of a recap of the day's news. And I had done some political and newsy one woman shows. I myself had always been very political in my comedy. And so I said, you know, it's not just responding to the news. The medium itself is a mess and I feel like should be held up to scrutiny. And they were like, okay. And I was like, okay. Uh, And they go, tell us more. And so I was like, well, you know, I think we should hire disgruntled news people who are just mad at because they can't actually tell stories anymore. Because at the time, everything was very sensational. You know, think about like the OJ trial, the Menendez brothers. There was only CNN at the time was the only news channel. And so it was this very non-newsy, if it bleeds, it leads, like just trying to get ratings kind of news. And so I said, why don't we get real news people who are funny and then get some comedians who care about news and present a show that is produced like a newscast, but runs like a comedy show. And they were like, that sounds great. And then they said, But it really sounds like we can't really pilot this. So what we're going to do, and that means like do a test episode. Um, What we're going to do is give you a year on the air to let the show develop. And that is unheard of in showbiz. Like it is completely unheard of. And the only other show that ever got that was The Simpsons. I so, love it. Why do you think they did it? Why do you think they, why, why, why did you get this, this crazy deal? I think because 
they knew that you had to see, um, there's so many facets of news. You know, when you watch it every night, it's either there's a breaking story and you got to go to 8 million people and you have to, and you have to, there's so many elements that get involved every night. It's almost like when you produce a newscast, you're reinventing the wheel every single time. And I think that they wanted, they knew that just one, one pilot episode wouldn't allow them to see if they had a working format. Also, news is really cheap to produce. So why not um, let it roll, um, work out the bugs, develop segments, and then see and see where it goes. I think that that was honestly, um, because of the nature of the format, they wanted to see a bunch of different ways that it could be done. And so every day that you would wake up, uh, you would do some kind of other sort of news program, depending on what the news was. And so that I think that's why it was pretty lucky. How did how did all of your work on The Daily Show prepare you for the activism that you are engaged in today around women's rights, around reproductive health, or did it not? Oh, it 100% did. It was the catalyst, I think, for everything. I'm somebody who has always been a curious person. I'm somebody who has, um, you know, as a woman, uh, walked with always some level of fighting power. Um, also as a white woman with some level of privilege. Um, but the thing I think that was the most interesting part of it was the standup. When I was doing straight standup, you know, every time I could talk about a lot of issues. Um, but when I would talk about reproductive rights, health, abortion, there was always a bristle. The audience was always like, mm, really? And then even at The Daily Show and subsequently at my other work, like I launched Air America Radio, um, when white dudes are in charge, they quell talking about anything that has to do with abortion, reproductive health, things that are considered, and I'm putting air quotes around this, um, women's issues, um, because they're like, oh, I don't know, it's got a broad enough audience or that's really polarizing and so even at Comedy Central, they would say two things to me. They would say, one, you're not an activist. You're a co comedy writer. And I was like, I'm kind of both. Actually, I'm really both. And so when that got hammered into my head on top of, and really let's stay away from this other third rail thing, I realized that I was kind of an anger fluffer. I'd get people all riled up tell these stories. And then I was not allowed to ever have a call to action. And so as I moved through corporate media from comedy, all the way through all this other stuff, I we're we get a lot of pushback on, on that. And I finally just said, it does me no good to inform people and to especially play with their emotions and their livelihoods. If I can't then also tell them what they can do and how they can participate in being part of the solution, that became really important to me. And so I had taken a break from doing this, this crazy MSNBC show that I was working on with Maury Povich and Connie Chung to write a book. When the book was finished, I wrote it back in my hometown of Minneapolis and I was driving back to Brooklyn and I had two dogs, my two dogs and I rented a van and I drove across country and I went and visited clinics all over the country. Cause it was right in 2010 when all of these laws just started happening all over the place and clinics started closing. And I drove all over doing fundraisers for clinics and the clinics all said the same thing to me you know, no one ever visits us. Nobody really understands. You know, I, we're almost confused about why you're here. And it kind of broke my heart. And I realized that they were struggling in their own way to have the community understand what they were doing. They were going to work every day being assaulted in front of their clinics. They'd have to drive home in a different way each night. 
Most of these clinics are run by black and brown women who are helping other folks who are low income BIPOC folks, you know, get the care they need. And they're tired and nobody cared about them. And I was like, I can, I can be part of bringing community together to help support the work these folks are doing. So I went back to New York and I gathered a bunch of folks who I work with comedians and activists and producers. And I said, I kind of want to get back out on the road and do some shows that will a comedy shows that will gather folks in because they like what we do, but and center the folks, the, the community activists on the ground to also be part of the show and tell their story and about the work they do and what they need. So for the past, you know, six or eight years, I've been traveling around the country with, with really great comics and really great musicians doing these community events that help grow activist bases uh, on a local level. And it's been really, really incredible. And seeing the intersections of racial justice, reproductive justice, economic justice, environmental justice, you know, having folks all come and see each other and know each other, it's been pretty cool. We've had a couple of people want to talk about uh, the abortion conversation and the, the scary Supreme Court and you know, it's looking bleak. And you even started this conversation by saying it's going to be overturned. Um, how are you not hopeless? Or, or like, what can people do? Or is this a just like, you wait it out and hold your breath and we pray? Or like, what is the, what's the what? I think where we keep our hope is that in, it's going to go back to the states. And so it's going to be on us to really be participating more than we ever have in our lives around what's going on in local politics. Um, I have to believe that people are going to learn that very quickly based on Roe being overturned because Roe gets overturned because of, of laws that pass in state legislatures and are signed by governors. So, you know, in our next iteration of how we mobilize, I really do not want people going to Washington. I want people to mobilize at home. I want people to really start thinking in their own communities um, and learn from the people doing the work. Um, you know, thinking about boot camp days where you learn about all of the ways that you can help facilitate people accessing the care they need so that you can find your place in the movement. Are you somebody who wants to get on the phone and try to help folks who need some assistance, whether it's actual to pay for their procedure or travel or lodging? You know, do you want to be somebody who's helping fund those things and connecting people with the funds? Do you want to be somebody who helps escort a clinics? Maybe it's your jam to like uh, help work on legislative stuff. Maybe it's your jam to do direct action. Like, um, but I don't think people understand all of the resources that are available to them. And so part of the work that we are going to be doing as we look towards June and beyond is really helping mobilize on the ground these kind of, you know, teaching boot camps that people can really immerse themselves into all the ways they can help and then come out with knowledge and then where they connected and all those things. Because I think being in community is, as you know, is always the thing that keeps you going every day and, and making sure that those numbers grow and keeping people active with stuff they can do that is always a laundry list of things that can be, you know, meeting them where they are, having people look at a list of activism and tools to say, here's my capacity this day, this week, this hour, and having them feel like they can make change um, with the capacity they have and really, and really making sure that also people understand as we move forward that bodily autonomy and, and access to this care, everybody, it's everybody's problem, right? For years, it's been kind of like 
can't tell you how many people have said to me, you women, when are you going to figure this out? You must be terrified. I'm like, I wish you were terrified to understand the humanity piece of this because we all go through it. You know, when I talk to my cis men friends and I'm like, how many relationships have you been in where your partner paid for the birth control? Oh, almost all of them. Right. Then you have benefited from birth control and access to all reproductive care. And so I think that like getting everybody involved is also going to be crucial because you got to hold politicians accountable and tell them that their jobs are on the line if they don't care about it. It's the only way this stuff works. What kind of uh, what kind of volunteering have you seen to be the most like when people call you and they're like, I want to fight. What have you seen to be and you just mentioned a, a range of things that people can do. What have you seen to be like the most common entry point for people or what have you what would you say is like the most impactful thing that people is it is it actually volunteering at a clinic or or is it like getting five friends to email somebody like or I don't know how do you think about the because I think people listening to this are, are like on your side and are and don't know what to do now they know right. like the range of things you know well if they I always say it's not necessarily Sometimes I think we go about it wrong. Sometimes I think we tell people what they should be doing rather than offering a, a, a panoply of things that people can look at. Like if you go to our website, we have a resources page, aafront.org slash resources. It lists a myriad of things that you can do so that you can make a self-assessment of your own capacities. Because the one thing that I think we can't say enough when it comes to getting people into an entry point is tell me what it is you love to do. Tell me what your skill sets are. Tell me what you can do and what you do do effortlessly. And I can almost always guarantee that I can help translate that into making change. Because I think that trying to wedge somebody into a a space that isn't something that motivates them or inspires them or or keeps them up at night or wakes them up in the morning, they're not going to be a sustaining member of making change. And for me, it's that self-examination always uh, of, of our movement and of the work that I do that says, come here, talk to me and, or come here, talk to my organization about who you are, what you do, what you know, what's important to you. And I can guide you to where you should enter. I'll help you with that entry point. Boom. I like that. What do you, what is the next five years of the reproductive health conversation? You know, DeRay, it's so, that question is the hardest question because you and I talked, I think two years ago in the, in the landscape of sort of where I go to my darkest spaces if you were to tell me that I would have woke up in September of 2021 and that the Supreme Court would uphold a law where people could bounty hunt other human beings trying to access abortions and that would be okay, I would say, you know, I mistrust humanity as much as the next guy, but that can't be true. So I, on one level, say, I can't imagine because so much has happened that I can't imagine. But then I have to try to imagine something because I really want to help people see it. So in the next five years, what I hope that we can do as activists is uh, support the clinics in in our spaces. And I think that medication abortion and self-managed abortion at home it's going to be a road that we need to go down. Um, a lot of folks don't know that just this year, um, medication abortion, which was invented in France in the in 1990s and has been legal in the United States since 2000, um, is a two-pill regimen that someone can take up until 10 weeks of pregnancy, um, where you basically, you have your abortion at home. It's like a heavy period, safer than taking Tylenol. And I want to say that again, safer than taking Tylenol. Um, for years, just up until this fall, it had been under strict, strict um, scrutiny, class, a classification that um, is allowed for only the most dangerous of drugs under this FDA classification. And it's 
that classification went away under the Biden administration this year. So it's more accessible. People are going to be able to get it through the mail in certain states, are going to be able to get it through telemedicine, which is being with your doctor on the computer um, or on the phone. So that's going to be something that uh, we need to push forward in as many states as possible to make it easier to access all the ways that we can. And I think that's going to be a big push forward in our movement, uh, as well as really just, we have not had conversations around reproductive health that have been really centering the patient at all. And so I think that patient care, I think storytelling is going to be a big part. I think when you put a face and a person and an experience, um, and you front face with that, you're going to be able to much more find common ground and empathy. Um, there's a great reproductive justice organization run by Renee Bracey Sherman that is an abortion storytelling organization called We Testify. And, you know, their, their tagline is everybody loves somebody who's had an abortion. And I think, you know, leading with love and leading with that is going to definitely be a big piece of our way forward. Now, I thought I, I thought I read uh, yesterday, maybe, that there was another state, like a state really close to doing another ban or almost is about to do a ban or did just do a ban that wasn't Texas. Um, did I make that up? No, you sure did not, honey. It happens every day. You know what? You could make that statement every day and you would be right. <laughs> so just know that. That's no good. That's no good. It's very bad. So Florida, West Virginia, Ohio, Arkansas have all done similar proposals, and Alabama, all done similar proposals to this Texas law, very similar. But I think the bigger thing to know, and this is part of the sort of like overwhelming larger scheme is there are 12 states right now who have put in place something that's called a trigger ban. And what that means is they preemptively created a law that says if Roe v. Wade is overturned within 30 days of that happening, 30 days to six months, depending on the state, all abortion will be banned in our state outright, no exceptions for rape or incest in 12 states. There are 13 other states that have near total abortion bans that will be triggered if Roe v. Wade is overturned. So what we're talking about as the Supreme Court comes down with their ruling is 26 states that will not be servicing 75 million people of reproductive age. And if that just sounds like big numbers and you can't even imagine what that's like, um, just because of Texas and and their six week ban, Um, states as far as Maine have two to four week waiting, waiting time on just getting an appointment because of the people who have had to flee Texas to get care. So when you take 25 other states on top of that, we are heading for a crisis that is, we are woefully unprepared for. And even states like California, New York, uh, Illinois that have progressive policy around this don't have the facilities or the doctors or the capacity to take on what's about to happen. And so I'd like everyone to really take pause on that because a lot of people are going to be turned away and there's going to be a lot of very scary decisions that people are going to make about their own lives because we all know you can have, you can make anything illegal. If people need it, they're going to they're going to find ways to get it or find ways to do it themselves. And those ways are often not safe. But there are two questions we ask everybody. The first is, what's a piece of advice that has stuck with you over the years? A piece of advice that stuck with me over the years, someone said to me, you matter, act like it. And I, and I always love that and think about that a lot when um, thinking about advocating for myself. So that is, that's my big one. You matter. Act like it. And then um, to the people who are hopeless, right? The people who are like, okay, we've done all the things we're supposed to do. We tried, we emailed, we called, we testified. And the world still hasn't changed in the way 
that we wanted to, what do you say to those people? I say to those people, it's think about what you have to offer, what your capacity is, and what that means for you staying in a movement and sustaining your activism. Um, I think that also, whatever your issue is, try to find a way that you can connect and be with the people who are affected by what's going on because humanity meeting humanity is really for me what keeps me going every day i don't know that i could just like work on environmental issues without being on the ground uh working every day with the people who are impacted by environmental injustice right like i don't i can't personally stay in a movement if I'm not working side by side with the people and taking leadership from the folks who are directly affected. And so I think thinking about it in those ways and figuring out those ways to connect with the humanity on the work every day, it will keep you grounded and it will keep you in the fight and you'll see change. You will. Boom. Well, we consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back on. And I'll be following the fight to make sure that I'm being the best ally that I can be. You know what? You're being super great. And uh, I love it. And thank you so much for having me. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning into Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we will see you next week. Pati the Brewer is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultre and mixed by Veronica Simonetti and executive produced by me. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles Johnson. <laughs>